What are the four things that matter most? You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ira Bayak. Dr. Bayak is Director of Palliative Medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and Professor of Anesthesiology and Community and Family Medicine at Dartmouth Medical School in New Hampshire and author of Dying Well and the book The Four Things That Matter Most. Dr. Bayak, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. It's a pleasure to be here, Susan. What are the four things that matter most? Well, the four things aren't things at all. They're statements. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. And I've learned through the years that those four sentences, those 11 words, can often be remarkable catalysts for people to mend and tend and nurture relationships in their lives. Uh, I've learned this for nearly 30 years now, working with caring for people facing the end of life, firstly in hospice care, and now increasingly I've been part of the national sort of palliative care movement. So we're caring for people in a busy tertiary care medical center, people who aren't maybe approaching the end of their lives, but many of them are certainly not about to acknowledge that and are frankly, seeking whatever curative or life-prolonging treatments they can. In your book, The Four Things That Matter Most, you talk about the value of stating the obvious. What do you mean? The four things, as I said, are, are four sentences. Please forgive me and I forgive you are important because, let's face it, there's not been a perfect human relationship in the history of the planet. and Even the closest and most loving relationships often have, have a, some history of hurt feelings, misdeeds, periods of anger, misunderstandings. I really emphasize the importance of stating the obvious when you get to thank you and I love you. It's not uncommon that in counseling, you know, the family of, a, of an elderly woman who has just had a stroke or an intracerebral bleed or is otherwise in coma in the ICU, in that family meeting, I might say that, you know, I've learned over the years that it's often of value to people, if heaven forbid someone should die, to have said to one another at least four things, and then I go through them. And when we get to thank you and I love you, not uncommonly, somebody says, oh, mom knows how much we love her. She knows how much we appreciate all that she's done for us. And my response to that is, well, good. Then it'll be really easy for you to get in there and say it. Because sometimes the words really matter, and people, yeah, they sort of know that their loved ones love them and appreciate them, but boy, it's really important to say it. How do you respond to skeptics who say, it's just not that easy? Yeah, it's not easy. I cringe when people think that, oh, well, he's just said this and it's glib and it's facile. It's not easy or it's courageous to do this stuff, frankly, but it's possible. What I've learned, I wouldn't have believed it myself. I'm relatively skeptical, and I'm not in tendencies toward a New Age kind of a perspective. But time and again, in caring for critically ill people and in helping patients and families in hospice care, I've found that, the, that sometimes deeply fractured relationships, where the anger that one person feels toward another is entirely legitimate and based in real misdeeds, somehow people have found a way to reconcile or heal or mend that relationship. And if I had been asked if that were possible, I would probably have said, nope, not in a long time. It would take years of counseling and, you know, to possibly work through these complexities. But I've seen it happen. 
And that, and you know, if you see something to happen, you better get your head around it, as they say. So I've come to realize that as a physician, if I can't at least acknowledge that that level of healing is possible, I can't help anybody move in that direction, frankly, as a counselor. And in fact, in subtle ways, I may close or narrow an opportunity that they might otherwise have. How do you start this conversation? Because saying I'm sorry is hard for a lot of people without the catalyst of a brush with death or hearing a terminal diagnosis. You know, in large measure, that's why I wrote this book. (laughs) What I mean by that is, from now on, if your listeners have heard this discussion, they can go home and say, you know, I heard this guy on the radio talking about his book, and he said that it's often a value for people to have said four things to one another, you know, before a relationship comes to an end. And it gives people a way to open the conversation. You know, it's not, you don't have to buy the book or even read the book, but just now you've got a, a way to start the conversation. And the, the other thing is, though, I've, I've learned this, from people who were forced to face the fact that their lives were going to be limited. But it applies at any time. I was once asked, who did you really write this you know, book for, Dr. Black? Who's your real audience? And I thought for a moment, and it's anyone who's mortal or who loves someone who's mortal. If you're not mortal, but you love someone who is, that's enough to put you at risk, right? There's Somewhere around 22,000 Americans die every month, I think, in car accidents. Uh, They didn't think they were dying when they left the house that morning, but that day, many important relationships came to an end. We can't change the fact that we're at risk, but we can ensure that on any given day, we can say that there was nothing critically important left unsaid with the people we love most in our lives. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Ira Bayak, discussing his book, The Four Things That Matter Most. Dr. Bayak, describe the effects these words have. Well, people often feel uh, so much less panicked when they can make explicit this sort of underlying dis-ease that they feel that, you know, they're not ready, that, oh, they've got stuff to do. And it often, it's a tough subject to bring up because it conveys to people that you think they may die. So I, I try my best to sort of talk about the fact that, you know, as long as we're mortal, this has value to us. And in fact, and I usually convey things by, by frankly, trying to share stories from what other people have taught me, uh, what I've observed over the years, that w- when people have said the things that are most important, have in their own words, in various ways, said the four things to one another, in one sense you could say, well, there's nothing left to say or nothing left to do. But what happens naturally during those times is w- what I can only term celebration, there is infused within the relationship and the time people spend this notion that we're just enjoying our time together has intrinsic value. What can we do just to celebrate this moment? You know, it may be as easy as holding hands or having a cup of tea or watching a ball game, but there something changes in the relationship. In your book, you write about the Polanskis. Tell us that story. The story of the Polanskis is a story of a deeply fractured relationship in, in which 
a wife uh, of many years had been disloyal and adulterous to her husband multiple times, and everybody in town knew it, and he, she had shamed him multiple times, and there was a great deal of bitterness. And it's an example where a courageous, really gifted counselor in, in Israel, Lynn Halamash, used uh, the four things as a counseling tool. And she, with Mr. Polanski's permission in helping him, counseling him through this time of grief and conflicted sadness, and, and he wasn't sure what he was feeling, but he was in anxious distress, suggested that at, at one point he tried just to get in touch with the girl and the bride he once knew, and to, for his own sake, say the four things to her, to whisper it in a, in a voice where, that she could not hear. At one point, she asked him, how do you sleep? He says, back to back, of course, which was, you know, emblematic of their relationship at the time. And what happened, and it is a real story, is that in doing so to his wife, who was, in fact, very ill, he did get in touch with, with those feelings. And she, for the first time in really years, said something extraordinarily tender to him. She, she said, if I can remember, something like, you are my rock. You are beautiful. And to him, the years of hurt and the wounds that existed between them were not forgotten, but somehow healed in a way that has allowed him to grieve her loss, but to feel well within himself. And I think really that's the remarkable thing of all this. When people have done the work prior to a loved one's dying, their grief, their quality of life, uh, is clearly different. It is less conflicted. And, and I see that again and again in, in our palliative care team's practice. Does forgiveness mean exoneration? No. Forgiveness is so misunderstood, and it is usually the barrier why people, when they hear us talk about these things, our team and, and people talking about the power of this, they think, oh, it's impossible. I could never forgive that SOB. You know, I could never forgive somebody who's done this to me. But forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's a sophisticated emotional strategy for your own emotional well-being. It's a way of getting rid of the anger you're carrying. Thomas Saz, the psychiatrist, once said that the stupid neither forgive nor forget, the naive forgive and forget, the wise forgive but never forget. When a terminal diagnosis exists, are there five things that matter most that include goodbye? Absolutely. In fact, uh, goodbye is, is a wonderful part of all this. When I wrote Dying Well, I talked about saying the five things. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye. But for years, people would tell me, and I saw it, of course, I knew it, that it's not really necessary to say to be dying to have these things matter and to be of value. You just have to be mortal. <laughs> so, so I decided to actually emphasize that by saying it's important to say four things before goodbye, whenever goodbye is going to happen. Today's a good day to do so because you just never know. But goodbye, which really comes from, from the ancient English to say God bless or God be with thee, is a wonderful way to bless people at any parting and to just again acknowledge their worth and their value to you in, in your life. 
What feedback have you received from physicians about the book? You know, the book is a very non-academic book, and I do write for uh, academic journals and sit on editorial boards. And so I, I frankly was squeamish about sharing it with colleagues. It's written for the general public. It's written for colleagues perhaps to suggest to their patients. But, but really, Dying Well, our, my first book was written more for, for colleagues and for uh, academic use and pedagogy. But in fact, many, many colleagues have said, you know, this is fabulous. And, and yes, I've given it to patients, but you know, I, this has been really valuable in my, my life. And it's helped with my relationship with my parents or my in-laws or with my spouse. <laughs> because they're mortal, right? Because they're mortal. And I'll tell you, saying the four things, if it actually, you tried going through this exercise, it really does change relationships. It really does sort of clear the air. Having to say, please forgive me, to a parent, to a child, to one's spouse, to one's sister, really is very valuable. I want to thank Dr. Ira Bayak, who has been our guest today discussing his book, The Four Things That Matter Most. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.